0: Welcome to The Third Horizon. I'm Paul Pivcevich.
1: I just did a back-of-a-napkin calculation a few years ago uh, to see you know, if, if this is a method that we should look into uh, to sequester carbon. And I was stunned myself because when you take um, to, uh, 2018 numbers for the UK carbon footprint, um, we would be able to sequester 100% of our annual greenhouse gas emissions on half of agricultural land in the UK.
0: This time we look at the unrealised potential of farmland. Perhaps we don't immediately think of land as related to building back better, but what about the potential of land around our businesses on science parks or university campuses to sequester carbon, say? Well, you might get some ideas this week. I'm speaking to the entrepreneur Daniel Turkiel, so powerful is our land that if we could repair this living resource and restore the subsoil food web, we could, he believes, sequester most of our carbon emissions and do away with chemicals in agriculture with the stroke of a pen.
1: You do what you do? We're just going to switch this one little thing. We're going to take away the chemicals and we're going to replace them with this with this thing called the soil food web. And we're basically going to uh, mitigate all of the side effects of the chemicals, but you're not going to lose yield and people are going to get organic food by default.
0: I just have to say a few more words before we get back to Daniel. Has anyone out there read James Rebanks' book, English Pastoral? The story of how James, a late District farmer, rescues something of the life he once knew as a boy that was being swallowed up by industrial agriculture? Well, I finally read it last autumn and recommended everyone buy it for a loved one at Christmas. It was the first time a townie like me felt farmers care for their land, particularly those like James, now bringing wildness back to their farms. But there's no escaping the lure of industrial methods, hormones, antibiotics and so on. Who could resist a five-fold increase in milk yields, for example, when compared to traditional methods? Daniel feels this dilemma deeply too. He spent plenty of time with farmers, but he has faith that his vision will pay off. Back to him now. I'm keen to catch up. We haven't seen each other for quite a while. Welcome, Daniel. Great to see you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Uh, yeah, thanks, Paul. Uh, it's good to see you too. So you've been doing some very, very exciting stuff with soil. Tell me a little bit about that.
1: Okay, so the... Um... The problem I'm trying to solve is the side effects of chemical agriculture. Chemical agriculture, intensive agriculture, uh, has given us abundant and inexpensive food. The side effects that come with it have to do with the pollution of environment, potential chemicals within the food, and uh, also a carbon footprint. Agriculture in the UK, I think it's, it's somewhere between 9 and 12% of the total UK footprint, carbon footprint. But globally, it's it's about, it's about a quarter. So agriculture basically takes about a quarter of our total civilization's carbon footprint. So the idea is slightly different to the, the, the normal approach, where a lot of people simply concentrate on banning chemicals. And this is happening. This is not the, the fact that I'm fighting. What I'm trying to concentrate on is to actually give the farmers an alternative so that they simply move away from using the chemicals and they don't lose yields. Because if you think about it, last year, for instance, uh, sugar beet growers, when the neonicotinoids were banned, they lost 50% of their yields. So imagine, you know, you've got a job in London and then one day basically your boss says, uh, you're just going to take a 50% pay cut. And now you have to go home and tell your family that, well, our lifestyle is going to change. So I, I do basically keep in mind the, the the fact that these are people. And um and I'd like you know, to approach it from, from that perspective. The tools that I'm utilizing are based around the work of Dr. Elaine Ingham, um, who uh, in the, back in the 80s, basically uh, was a pioneer of looking in the soil microbiology, the beneficial soil microbiology, and demonstrated that we can actually grow food without chemicals and uh, with the same yields and sometimes better if we have the correct set of diverse microbes in the soil.
0: In his understated way, Daniel is about to challenge our existing paradigm, our fundamental assumption about how plants grow. You sow the seed into the soil, as I just did with my early marigolds, to put in pots on my windowsill and they grow. Well, no. Remember the idea from biology class of a food chain? But this operates for plants too. Plants cannot grow on their own. They're at the top of a food chain that begins with the smallest of soil microbes. These microbes extract micronutrients from the soil that plants simply don't have access to and donate them to the plants in return for sugars. This exchange is vital for both to grow. But why, I wonder, go to market with a product that's already there in nature? The answer is at once as simple as it's astonishing. The soil microbes are no longer there.
1: They're not present in the soil uh, due to the practices in modern agriculture. Uh, the main reason is uh, turning of the soils or plowing or, or cultivation. And we've got four main groups, bacteria, fungi, protozoa and nematodes. And the uh, the only thing that really survives that process is bacteria. And fungi get cut through. And protozoa and nematodes, they simply get squashed or thrown into um, the conditions that they don't like, and so they either leave or die. And then we follow it up with um, with, with chemicals. And so you've got insecticides, which will kill a lot of these, um, uh, these protozoa and nematodes, and then you've got fungicides, which will kill the fungi. So that's, that's how we lose the, um, the, the three groups out of the four that we need.
0: So they kill the beneficial elements of a healthy soil. Mm-hmm. But presumably, they also kill the pests, those um, elements that attack the crops.
1: Well, that's, that's the idea to, um, uh, to use it in the first place, right? Um, but the question really is, why do we need to use it in the first place? And um, the, the answer is that plants actually evolved with this soup of microbes. And so what plants figured out is that they can photosynthesize sugars and proteins. Great, fantastic. But bacteria and fungi, they actually have enzymes and acids to dissolve rock. And they also have means of uh, capturing nitrogen from the air and making it into uh, a plant-available form. So the plants take what they produce, the sugars and protein, they send it down into the soil and they feed bacteria and fungi. And then bacteria and fungi, they become these microfertilizer bags. So then the microfertilizer bags basically then uh, aggregate on the roots because everything is happening on the roots. You know, the plant is pushing out all these foods, so they aggregate on the roots. So then something has to come about and open these microfertilizer bags. And that's the role of protozoa and nematodes. So they come in, they eat the protozoa and uh, they eat the bacteria and, and fungi, and there's an excess of nutrients that they pretty much pee out. And now those nutrients are in a form that the plant can take up. And so the plant can simply take up those those nutrients uh, very easily. The thing is that if that soil food web is not present, the plant will keep on sending sugars and proteins. And so it's been demonstrated that um, it will send over 90% of what it produces into the soil, waiting for a response. And it doesn't get that response. So only a few percent of what it produces actually goes into plant
0: tissue. I'm noticing I have to pause here just to gather my thoughts. We've done extraordinary things just this last year. I mean, understanding and successfully taking on a particularly contagious virus in sending a spacecraft 300 million miles to land on Mars. But we haven't yet grasped how plants grow.
1: Now, basically, you've got a stressed plant because it's been sending all of that uh, energy that it's been producing, it. but not been getting anything back. Okay, so now we've got a weak plant. What happens then? Uh, well, first of all, we need to feed it. So we put it on a drip feed of, um, of fertilizers, right? And we don't know exactly when it needs what. And when we look at the plant and there's a yellow leaf, that's too late. That's actually already too late. You know, the mm-hmm. damage has been done. So... The, the thing that happens is that the, the plant is stressed. And the, when a plant is stressed, it actually sends certain, certain signals into the uh, rhizosphere and actually into the air as well, which get picked up by pests. Mm. And so the pests actually hone in on these signals of a weak plant. And they, Dr. Ingham talks about this and she calls them the garbage collectors, that the, the plants which are stressed, basically, you know, they are there. Uh, not fit now for a purpose, they need to be taken out. So pests basically will come in and start eating them because they they need to be taken out. So the healthy can can survive. So then we come in with insecticides and we spray with insecticides. So that's that's why we've we, we've got that.
0: What you're arguing for is restoring this healthy natural cycle as a way of doing away with the need for for, for chemicals. Are you saying that's completely risk free? Are, are there never going to be any pests again or any crop blights again? Or does the farmer have to accept some risk as, as, as part of nature, frankly?
1: That's a very good question. Uh, you know, nature is very resourceful. You never know how that's going to develop fully. However, what we've been seeing over the past 30 plus years is that if you have a healthy community of, of microbes, it is like a healthy town. They simply are outcompeted competed for resources and there is neighborhood watch, and so, you know, if anything comes in, they might actually get kicked out. It's actually been demonstrated that you can grow the same crop without rotation year in, year out uh, when you have a correct soil food web in place.
0: Fascinating. So, so you've developed then uh, some sort of inoculant that enables the soil to stay productive.
1: Um, I'm never going to take credit for that. The, the person that's, that's done the, the research and the work is Dr. Elaine Ingham. Uh, my work is basically to ensure that under um, this uh, inoculum is commercialized.
0: The the consequences of, of doing that, I think you're claiming, are really um, quite profound in terms, not just in terms of crop productivity and not using pesticides and the consequences of, of that in, in, in terms of water supply, but also in terms of sequestration of carbon. Is that right? Yes. So, um This is the work done by Dr.
1: David Johnson from New Mexico State University, and it's very openly shared on uh, online. You can find his his talks actually on YouTube. What he what he demonstrated is that we could be storing uh, ten tons of carbon, so it's molecular carbon, atomic carbon. If we're talking about carbon dioxide, it's about three point six times that, so it's you know thirty six tons of carbon dioxide per hectare per year Um, in the soil and biomass. So uh, I just did a back of a napkin calculation a few years ago uh, to see, you know, if, if this is a method that we should look into uh, to sequester carbon. And I was stunned myself because when you take um, two uh, two thousand eighteen numbers for the UK carbon footprint, um, we would be able to sequester one hundred percent. Of our annual greenhouse gas emissions on half of agricultural land in the UK, if we did that. So, if we basically switch to regenerative agriculture and have a full soul food web, and probably will, would need to work out, you know, a, a whole procedure when it comes to that carbon sequestration. Um, but it is possible to sequester all of our greenhouse gas emissions and still be going on on you know holidays. Uh, with, uh, with Ryanair and EasyJet and all the others.
0: That's astonishing. Who else is aware of this?
1: I actually have been speaking to the aviation industry, uh, believe it or not, um, just because actually aviation is very close to my heart. And, you know, there's there's been obviously a lot of talk uh, in the media, uh, you know, about the detrimental effect of, of growing uh, air travel. But uh, my parents met flying gliders back in the 60s. So without aviation, I wouldn't be here. So I've got a bit of a debt to pay there. And so I thought, you know, if, if aviation uh, puts some money to it, I think I calculated that I could be storing the entire UK aviation carbon footprint on 140,000 hectares, something like that. It's, it's, it's nothing. It really is nothing. So, and and that's just the aviation carbon footprint. And if they ploughed in some of some of their profits back into this, they could be basically a, an industry that will lead the charge forward and say, "Do you know what, guys? Here's some money, and we're going to cover for ourselves, for the automotive industry. You know, let's throw in there the um, the uh, energy, you know, utilities, whatever else. They could actually basically sponsor the whole thing, and um, and, and we could be done within the next ten years." By the way, Ireland only needs 31% of their agricultural land to cover their carbon footprint. Here in the UK, what I found was the system in general works for farmers, which means that uh, we're in, basically in a climatic zone where conventional agriculture works. It uh, creates a crop and it provides an income. There, The, the, the thing is that the side... Uh, side effects of it are, you know, sort of controlled, uh, mitigated for, uh, observed, um, but they're still sort of like, you know, uh, a big issue, right? So what I saw with the soil food web was that instead of using permaculture and saying to the farmer that you're going to grow a mixed forest now, and you will, you know, graze pigs and cattle and chickens through that forest and somehow you're going to make a profit and I don't know how, instead of telling them that, all I'm basically saying that you do what you do, we're just going to switch this one little thing. We're going to take away the chemicals and we're going to replace them with this, with this thing called the soil food web and we're basically going to uh, mitigate all of the side effects of the chemicals, but you're not going to lose yield and people were going to get organic food by default, you know, and everything is going to be by default organic now because nobody even will have to check, you know, because you, you're you not putting any chemicals on it, so you don't have to be even checked for that, you know, so.
0: And when you say that to farmers, what sort of response do you get?
1: Um, you know, it's it's a mixed response. I, I, I haven't been actively promoting this to farmers because I don't really have – a commercially ready product to um, to go and help them. So I get to speak with farmers who are conventional and I open my ears and I listen. And I also speak to regenerative farmers or people who are switching because they they understand that regenerative agriculture can you know give them the ability to save money on chemicals and look after their soil. So it's two different conversations. And when I'm ready to do trials, the whole strategy is that I do the trials on the farm that I'm on right now, and I have results, controlled trials, so conventional, biology, control. And we can see it all in one field. And then I can go to the conventional farmer and say, look, I've got this thing. Why don't we do a trial on your land? And, um, you know, maybe we can get a grant so you don't have to even pay for it, because there are lots of grants for around um, for looking after the soil now. So, but basically, you know, the, the whole idea is that not to go and try to convince anybody.
0: Correct. So you're creating, rather than pushing something, you're creating the conditions for a pull. You're making it as simple and as straightforward as possible. Daniel, I, I want to switch to uh, understanding a little bit more about you as a, as a person. Um, when did you first have a sense that uh, helping the natural environment or aiding nature is something that's important to you?
1: Um, it's not important at all. Not at all. The thing is that I recall even my mom saying when I was little... That, that we're like a pest to the planet, and the planet doesn't care. She's going to just shake us off like fleas. I sort of high 5 George Carlin here, uh, which is a, a dead American comedian, uh, who basically said, you know, planet's going to be fine. Don't go out saving the planet. It's not the planet that's got a problem. It's us that are screwed. And so I'm quite fond of this civilization. I like Star Trek. I want us to um, to go to space. Uh, So I'm I'm quite happily looking at the progress of SpaceX and Elon Musk. Uh, But at the same time, I understand that if we don't look after um, the ecosystem that we've come out from, um, this is going to be the end of us. And history repeats itself. Every civilization uh, mostly failed due to the failure of agriculture, and we can't ignore that we've got this wonderful civilization which allows us to um to use zoom and the laptop to talk to each other right now even though we're under lockdown and we couldn't see each other uh, but we forget that the basis of civilization is agriculture and agriculture is still very much rooted in the ecosystem and so we can't ignore that absolutely
0: um so let's turn then to the um the business model and what uh you know you, you can um, perhaps offer.
1: So there's four elements to um, to this business model. It's a very simple business model, but it's going to be very complex to um, to to build, and it's going to take probably close to three years to to get to sort of full speed. Uh, my job is to uh, reliably produce an inoculum of diverse uh, microbes, and then go to the farmer and offer it as a service of applying it. So they will be basically charged on a you know per hectare basis. Offer the service of uh, monitoring the biology in the soil. So I use a microscope. And then, you know, there will be some consultations, obviously, to educate people and prepare them for um, for the transition.
0: You know, using your inoculant, they are enabling not only the health of their place, their farm, their immediate environment, but also the health of the wider population they're serving through growing food.
1: The, the, the current... Uh, the current view by conventional farmers is that if they switch to organic production, they lose 50% of their yields straight away. And that's why they don't switch. And that's unfortunately reflected in, in the statistics. You know, the Solar Association posters statistics that demand for organic produce is growing. And so we as consumers, we've done our job. We have demonstrated that we want to move away from chemicals. We want more organic produce. Then when you go to the grocery aisles and you go to the bread section, how much organic bread do you see there? The thing is that you see none, or very little, or very expensive bread uh, from time to time. And the reason for that is that uh, organic grain production in this country is only 34,000 hectares out of the 6 million. That's 0.6% of all grain production in this country is is organic. So the thing is that the challenge here is it's not the, the demand. The challenge here is the supply. And uh, I can tell you for sure that the farmers are going to be very, very proud to say that you know, they're, they're producing nutritious, chemical-free produce. If you can help them do that, it's just that they've been stuck in this paradigm uh, that basically you know, has been built over decades. And it's, and it's just something that, um, that oftentimes somebody will have to come from the outset to help.
0: This is, uh, it's wonderful you're doing this have you have you had to challenge yourself to grow certain qualities to be able to serve such a large mission i think um
1: confidence for me was a was a big thing you know and and um and and confidence in myself and and i had to borrow that actually from my brother a few years ago first my brother is uh is is a natural um uh, his his passion in life is basketball. He's four years older than me as well, but he grew his own basketball team, and um, and and actually advanced in the league back in Poland. You know, this is twenty years ago, and so he's very good in terms of actually telling you that you, you you have the qualities. Look what you're doing. It's like this is this is his words. Like look what you're doing. Look how much you've already you know achieved here, and it's like you know you're taking these steps, and so what um the, the biggest thing for me was basically um, learning to take steps and uh, be happy with taking steps back uh, in order to um, to take steps forward again and just basically have the the, the confidence that um, uh, what you're doing actually has some results and the confidence that the next challenge you can take and just take it uh, I know that, I can't do this myself. It's not about me. It's not about basically, you know, Daniel's going to solve this problem. Um, it's about uh, Daniel recognizing that there's people who I can put into this puzzle somewhere, so that I can achieve this this, this grandiose uh, vision. But I wouldn't be able to to do it without, you know, their knowledge or their connections or some other um, serendipitous event, you know, that would be happening only because I've met them, at least at least two, maybe three people now that are trying to do this commercially as 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 I am, and and I'm just hoping that um that that they that they do it because, you know how quickly am I going to be producing eighty thousand cubic meters of this material per year, and I would need to be producing eighty thousand cubic meters of this material per year, for twenty years to visit each farm once. And never come back to it.
0: It's a huge challenge, right? And tell me, how do investors respond to that notion that these people who could be competing are actually talking to each other the whole time? And uh, you know, they should be protecting their IP because that's what's going to protect my money and my, therefore, my return. Not all
1: investors actually even ask that question. I'll be totally fair to them. The the very big corporations like you know Bayer, um, Syngenta. Uh, Dow industrial they're investing hundreds of millions of dollars into what we call uh, bugs in a jug which is basically a single microbe that's going to do one job and they're trying to you know just make sure that they've got this one thing uh, and if it's and if it's gene edited even better because then they can patent the um, the crap out of it and they're happy like that with the soul food web you can't do that soul food web is not something that you patent soul food web is, is a is a scientific term for uh, the microbes that live in the soil, and even even more than the microbes because it's, it's not the microbial soil food web, it's the soil food web. You could go higher than that. So you can't patent that. The only thing that I tell to investors is that basically at some point we're going to get to so much experience within our company in terms of the production uh, process is that the production process is going to become our own IP. Um, it's it's still something that is uh, that somebody else can get to, but if we do it now, if you invest now, then basically I'm ahead because I was the first mainland UK uh, lab certified by Dr. Ingham. and so I already have the, the the widest reputation in in that regard, and so and it's only growing at the moment. So you know I'm I'm always more interested in 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 doing this first in terms of competitiveness.
0: Are there examples which have inspired you?
1: Yeah, I mean, there's uh, there's people who've been doing this longer than I have, obviously, um, all around the world. There are examples in the UK that if they haven't been uh, properly documented. But I've got colleagues all, all around the world, you know, um, like a colleague of mine in Europe. Uh, he's um, he He's got a client in Latvia where he beat the chemical system by 20% in year one. You look at my colleague in Jersey, who works with um, CBD hemp, and you know the chemically grown hemp, and the the plants that they grew last year grew to seven meters with a high concentration of CBD. Uh, my colleague in the Netherlands, she did work with um, uh, globe artichokes, and um, she ended up with with so much so much production basically on twenty one square meters she had to basically do something with it she gave it to a local chef the local chef was so happy she couldn't sell it because of the botanical gardens because of their their charity like nature so he gave them one and a half thousand euros from 21 square meters for blue artichokes Um, you know you look you look at places more advanced you know in america um where they now operate on areas of a hundred thousand hectares i've got a colleague in canada She's been doing this for I don't know six or eight years now. Now they're actually pushing this into the mainstream in Canada. In hotter climates, especially, chemical agriculture is very, very detrimental. It just doesn't work. Temperate climate, fantastic. Hot climates, absolutely destructive. And so in South Africa, this this company. Uh, very successful tomato grower, they would have 14-year rotations. So, since they'd started using biology, the rotations went to zero exactly. Mm. Then there's my colleague, actually, um, uh, also who, who learned the course, and he grows bananas also in South Africa. He was close to bankruptcy when he was trying to do organic bananas. And then he started learning and applied the biology, and, um, and then he basically you know, supplied bananas to three countries. Uh, out of you know 1500 hectares he's got compost production to grow the biology he's got eight acres of it just to just for his for his purposes you know to, uh, to utilize the material that he produces on site. so all of these examples you know just from around the world that's what keeps me going um, but I still envision you know having different production sites even in the UK so I've got a client for instance in Scotland I'd love to have basically a facility over there and um, I'm Polish myself, so it will be easy to set up a uh, a facility in Poland. My colleague in the Netherlands would be a great hook to, um, to set up one in, in the Netherlands. So I've got all these contacts that we could just basically expand, but each place would have its own production facility. Shipping these microbes not only doesn't work from the perspective of the climate, what we found was that we produced the inoculum, but the inoculum is very, very diverse. There's, there's thousands of species. And then you put it into a soil, even in the local climatic region, but then after a few years you find that um, it just basically uh, selects for the local conditions and only you know a, a portion of it actually stays and flourishes and really works with the crop. And so you have to be local.
0: D- Daniel, congratulations. It's, uh, it's a fantastic project. And uh, I hope you get many people thinking about investing and uh, supporting it.
1: Thank you. I've always been uh, following uh, your projects as well.
0: And if you'd like to contact Paul, you can through his website, regenerative-partners.com.